0: My name is Arturo Escobar. I was born and I grew up in Colombia. Uh, I teach in the U.S. at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I teach anthropology and I work, I do most of my work as an anthropologist also in Colombia, especially in a rainforest region, the Pacific region of Colombia, with Afro-descendant movements and communities.
1: So Arturo, you gave a presentation yesterday um, about uh, the difference, what degrowth uh, would look like in the context of the, the developed world and the developing world, the global north and global south? Uh, could you sort of set out what you see as the as the prime motivation in each of those places? What, what's what's distinct between those two?
0: Okay. Um, well, one one of the points that I was trying to make is that. Um, what, I was trying to make a parallel between the degrowth movement, as a set of ideas and political projects and social projects for transformation or transition, uh, in the global North in a way, but especially in Europe and the U.S. Especially in Europe, which is—I mean, the U.S. This this is still way south, as you probably know better than me. But uh, and and the parallel movement in the U.S. That I see—I mean, in, in Latin America at least. Maybe not so much for the global south as a whole, but for Latin America in particular, which is the region of the world that I know the best, because I'm from there and I've been working there for a long time uh, as an anthropologist, as an ecologist, as an activist, is what I call alternatives to development. So when you talk about degrowth, and I think one of the speakers referred to that, I think it was Marcelo, the theologian, referred to that in our session, that uh, when speaks about the growth in Brazil, people laugh at him. What do you mean by the growth? I mean, with all this poverty, with all these problems, with all these possibilities for growing, you know, we Brazilians are growing like crazy. Why do we, I mean, the growth doesn't make any sense. And I think that's that's, that's a mistaken perception of what the growth is in Latin America. There is people who have looked at the growth and transition town initiative, but it also included ...in South America, including some environmentalists... ...and they, they find it appealing... ...and they find that it is not sufficient... ...for tackling issues in South America. One of the main ones... ...and this might... you might be a great person for you to also interview... ...I mean, if I wanted to point, point you... ...at one single source... ...in the South American debates on transition... And alternatives to development and Buen Vivir would be this uh, Uruguayan ecologist whose name is Eduardo Budinas. I can send you the information by email. Uh, he knows about Transition Town, he's, he's great good books. He has a great outfit in Montevideo, but he spends most of his time in the Andean region, especially in Ecuador, Bolivia, Peru, and Colombia. Uh, not Chile, not Brazil, not Venezuela, especially the four countries in, in the Andes. And uh, I, one of the things that he says, and the other person that is really uh, focusing on this, is an Ecuadorian whose name is Alberto Acosta, who was the president of the Constituent Assembly that wrote the New Constitution for Ecuador, where there is a huge section of Buen Vivir and, and Rights of Nature, and both of them have been writing about a kind of this two development and about the other concept that I didn't get to explain yesterday with the transitions to a post-extractivist model of society and the economy. So what they find is that the growth, and they have some differences with the growth, they say, well, here in Latin America we still have to grow in some ways. Livelihoods, people's livelihoods have to have to improve. And it's difficult to do that that without some growth, health, education. There are some sectors, housing, where the economy still has to grow. But the second point they say is that that growth has to be subordinated to a different vision of development, which is the Buen Vivir. Can you tell us a little
1: bit what that is? Yes, the, the
0: the the Buen Vivir is a concept that has been coming up strongly over the, past, I would say over the past 10 years, especially in South America, uh, in the context of the emergence of the left-leaning regimes in many South American countries, almost all of the South American countries with the exception of Colombia, and, and Peru now, well, it's difficult to say what Peru's regime, current regime is, but, uh, and in that context, in the search for a different way of thinking about development and pushed by indigenous peoples, to some extent also by peasants, by African descendants, and in collaboration with ecologists, sometimes feminists, sometimes activists of different social movements, I started to say, well, this model of development, this is the moment to really change our development model from a growth-oriented and extraction of natural resources-oriented model to something that is more holistic, something that really speaks to the indigenous cosmovisions of the people, in which there, this this uh, notion of prosperity based on material well-being only, and material consumption doesn't exist, or is not what, what has been traditionally uh, cultivated among indigenous communities. But it's a notion of, it's not even a notion of development, and that's the key. Because some people are saying, well, when vivid is the new theory of development. No, it's not a theory of development. It's a theory of something else that is not developed. It's a theory, people translate it as the good life. I I prefer to translate it as collective well-being. But it's a collective well-being of both humans and non-humans. Humans, human communities, and the natural or living beings.
1: And what does that look like in practice? What are, they, what are the elements of elements.
0: That's the key question. I mean, in the practice the implementation of the Buen Vivir and that's this struggle, especially in Ecuador and Bolivia that have moved uh, governments that have been put in power mostly by coalition and social movements, especially indigenous movements which over the past six years since they were elected in 2006 and they were elected with the promise that they were going to be carrying out this mandate of the Buen Vivir in the constitutions of both Bolivia and Ecuador. There are different Notions of Buen Vivir in post constitutions that say the goal of state policy should be to promote Buen Vivir, which involves uh, social justice, a, a new notion of rights that includes the rights of nature, ecological sustainability, uh, the elimination of poverty, or the reduction of poverty. The reduction of poverty and the protection of nature are sort of the two main dimensions of that. So there's two sides to it, Buen Vivir, which is, let's say, the social and economic and political side, and the rise of nature, which is the ecological side. So the aims of the constitutions and the development plans, you know, I've looked at the development plans of both governments, and they say they're very contradictory, because they say we have to carry out this mandate. But they keep falling back to the old ideas about growth and extraction of natural resources and planning as a a top-down exercise and we, the experts, have designed the plan for the Wenbivir, but the communities feel excluded. So the clash now, the clash now in both countries, and in places like you know southern Colombia, southern Mexico, Chiapas, and Oaxaca, is between indigenous and peasant and black movements on the one hand, movements that are for the Wenbivir, that are for a different vision of development, and the state approach which is still is what Goudinas and Acosta in particular call neo-extractivists. And they are neo-extractivists because they are still based on the extraction of natural resources, oil, natural gas, lithium, soybeans, sugarcane, agrofuels of all kinds, gold, minerals. So they are selling out the countries and there's left regimes that are transacting with corporations, you know, Canadian, American, European, South African, Chinese, corporations to take out natural resources. They are not traditional extractivism because, like the older Venezuelan regimes, for instance, there was so much oil, but the oil benefited only small elite. Now the idea of these left regimes, which is a very good idea, obviously, is that they are being, going, going to be using the revenues, which are far much larger than in the previous regimes that basically gave everything to corporations. They are going to use the revenues for social risk redistribution to decrease poverty and decrease inequality, and to some extent they are doing it. But in the process, they have become these neo-developmentalist uh, development models, You know, pretty much the same as in the past, only that with a better social policy.
1: It's interesting that the, that the, <laughs> the, the, the starting point was the idea of social justice and uh, linked to environmental protection. Whereas in yes. England at the moment, for example the British government there, are basically saying we have to go for economic growth at all costs and actually we'll lose the, yes. the environmental protection is kind of optional. Yes. It's interesting to see that that's written in from the beginning.
0: In those exactly, and which is what is happening in the US as well, yeah, yeah. for instance with uh, hydrofracking yeah. which is being given you know, carte blanche all over the place.
1: So in, yeah. in, in transition, when we get asked about what transition should look like in south and we always say that it's it's about building resilience in both places that actually the process of globalising food production has reduced food resilience in the global north uh, because we've become so dependent on imports and and moving stuff around and in the global south in terms of the destruction of small farming and so on and so forth. What's your sense of, 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 of that sort of balance of, of how we build resilience in both places? Okay. And, and, that, and, and, and also, I suppose, what transition groups who are working in the global north can do through their actions to support what's happening in the south.
0: Okay. Um, I think the concept of resilience is a very good, and I, I know that you emphasise in from the very first uh, book uh, the concept of resilience, and I think it's a concept that cut cut across global north and global south I I would have to go and look more carefully to see if it has been used now in Latin America but I think it's a very fruitful concept and actually that would be a good question Eduardo Guinez is a very good friend of mine so I'm going to ask him him the question Uh, and there are some parallels that I think could be thought about for both the global north and the global south in principle in the practice that would have their own specificities, as you yourself said yesterday, I mean, on the first night of the presentation, is, every town basically has its own specificities. Local food, I think is very important when the global north is, is increasingly important in the global south, under a different umbrella. A different umbrella is the, that of food sovereignty. Food sovereignty, food autonomy. In Colombia, for instance, movements prefer to use autonomía alimentaria, food autonomy, which is somewhat different food sovereignty. Food sovereignty puts the emphasis at the national level. So a country might say, well, we, are, we have food sovereignty because, you know, we, we basically produce food for the population, blah, blah, blah. It says, no, it's not good enough. It has to be food autonomy locally, regionally, nationally. Uh, so peasant movements like Via Campesina, that Elena mentioned rightly so, because it's a very important movement in Latin America and worldwide, is focusing on food sovereignty and for autonomy to a lesser extent. So the question of food is crucial as an entry point to transition. Energy, I don't see... Energy is so important in the global north, I see it less important in the global south, and that's not necessarily good, that doesn't necessarily mean something good. We should be thinking more about energy. And there is actually one of Goudina's co-workers now, that I recall, uh, who has a program on energy, in particular for South America so I'll have to send you the link for that as well. It's a very interesting one. He talks about sort of the the transformation that had to take place at the level of energy for transitions to take place.
1: And the people, the people in the global north who say, "Oh, you can't talk about local food because if you talk about local food, what you're doing is you're you're condemning farmers in Kenya and Chile to poverty and unemployment and stuff." How do you respond to that? Argument?
0: I don't this? think I don't think that makes any sense. I mean, if you look carefully. Yeah, sure. There's a lot of food being grown in Africa, Asia, Latin America for European and American markets, but who's benefited from that? Most times, it's not local peasants. It seems to be local peasants, at least two or three decades ago. Even in some some of the agrofuels that are touted as you know big solutions in, environmentally and so forth, like African African palm, which I know very well because it's been yeah planted in Colombia all over the place Uh, is being done at the expense of local communities local ecosystems by large Colombian capitalists or by large corporations I know that in parts of Africa and the Middle East it's mostly like German or European corporations that are planting food in these countries with local cheap labor to be exported to European markets so I don't think that's I think on the contrary local food in the north is going to be good for local food in the south and it's going to stop this, this idea that the south will have to grow, you know, luxury crops uh, for the global north so, and if, that, uh, yeah. so,
1: so, so if a transition initiative in the global north is actively working to local, localise its local food supply to reduce its carbon footprint to put in place renewable energy infrastructure to localise its economy is your sense that by default that, that that is helping the movement towards alternative developments in the global south, or could they be doing something more, more mindfully, more intentionally to support that struggle at the same time? Um, I think that I would
0: answer by saying the first option that you outline is sort of the better way to think about it that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it thinking about the Global South as well and how the Global South is affected. I mean, there might be cases uh, in which particular groups in the Global South might be hurt by uh, practices that emerge in the Global North around transition initiatives. And, you know, for instance, uh, one of the speakers this morning, uh, the... uh, so Nicola Picchio is the professor Picchio who spoke about uh, as a feminist economist yes. and saying well we should always think from the perspective of women so that's, that's in principle that's very good how do as a question how do we ask the question how do our activities in transition town initiatives in the global north or transition initiatives might or might not might benefit or might hurt particular vulnerable groups in the global south Women, indigenous minority, indigenous peoples, black peoples, ethnic minorities, and peasants in particular. And I think that's always a very good question to ask. And that's not such a huge question to answer, you know, to sort of follow the threads of the actions. But I think, as a whole, I would tend to think that it would transition activities in, in the global north would tend to contribute, if not immediately, at least. Uh, at some point to transition activities and alternatives to development and local autonomous in the global south. To the extent also that they continue contribute to erode corporate power, which is what unites and what is really screwing up everybody, including people in the global north. Now my Finnish friends tell me that and Canadian, that the same corporations that have been screwing up the global south for so many decades now are doing the same in northern Canada and Northern Finland. So it's not even the North is going to be a spell anymore. Uh, so in that sense, I think that uh, the alliances have to be built. They, maybe one more thing on this, that the conversations between global activists, transition activists in the North and transition activists in the South have to be cultivated. And there will be somewhat difficult conversations, and you, I think the questions you're asking are the ones that we have to start with. In terms of the constant, the practices that we use for transition in different parts of the world, and but we have to take into account that there, there will be intercultural conversations, interepistemic conversations, different knowledge that are going to be involved, uh, and those are they require translation, sort of a translation across knowledges, across cultures, across histories, across different ways of being negatively affected. By organization across levels of privilege, and so forth.
1: Is just a, a, applying the concept of localism, localization, going to generate sufficient employment to create the kind of employment the, 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 that these countries need, you think?
0: Pro- probably not. I think I think there has to be a level, there has certainly um, a lot of emphasis on local actions, local solutions, but there has to be also some degree of thinking and policy implementation at the regional level and at the national level. I mean, the state has to become more part of the solution than part of the problem than it is now. Now it's much more part of the problem. Uh, With some of these progressive regimes, it it has tried to become part of the solution as well in terms of connecting really with social movements But the the give and take between social movements that are pushing for more for the local kind of autonomy, the protection of territories, the preservation of cultural and biological diversity on the one hand, and the state who has sort of the national level and the transnational level in mind is going again really tight. And the ruptures are beginning to happen, even in countries like Bolivia and Ecuador. Where there has been more closeness between the state and the, and the and the movements.
1: And what's the role of technology here? Because there are some people who would say if we could uh, do open source genetic modification, then that would have a role. There are some people who, uh, you know, that actually there are all kinds of technologies or nuclear power, those kind of things. You know, where, in your take on? alternatives to development what constitutes good technology and what constitutes a technology
0: that doesn't have Yeah, that, that, that's a very important question I think technology is super important and I don't think when we indigenous communities Afro-descendant communities, communities they are not opposed to technology per se if they can be connected to the internet if they can have technology that improves the productivity of the land uh, if they can have technologies that improve their living standards, that's all great. What they are opposed to is to having those technologies coming in at the expense of their autonomy, at the expense of the territories, at the expense of the cultural traditions, at the expense of the worldviews and, and ways of living. So, but when you read, and this is also, I think, it's a misconception, that the buen vivir because it has being promoted mostly by indigenous movements, indigenous intellectuals, is something about going back to the past, it's not at all. It's not about going back as who said it that somebody said it today about the growth as well. The growth is not about going back, it's about moving forward. The same with indigenous communities of New it's about moving forward but how? The difference is how. The way in which we're moving forward today, on the basis of growth and extractivism and, and profit, and, and just the capital, the dominance of a particular model, of, which is capitalism and modernity, that for many communities and many movements, that is is the end, and that has to stop. So, but it's not it's not it's not anti-technology, it's not anti-modern. For me, the the criteria is is to weaken or lessen the dominance of the growth model, the the high-tech model, the uh, conventional economic neoliberal model, and the dominance of one particular cultural framework, which is the cultural framework of modernity, and to allow for many different worldviews and frameworks.